Accounting Influencers Broadcast Network presents Success in Accounting. Sponsored by Dext. With Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. Welcome to our Success in Accounting show and continuing with a series of interviews we're doing with global leaders all over the world talking about women in accounting i'm thrilled to have with me today someone that's very qualified on this andrula soteri hello to you hi rob how you doing well, it's doing great it's wonderful to have you with us for people that haven't come across you and andrula just tell us a little bit about your role and how you got there yeah absolutely so um i've had a really interesting journey to getting to my role my role is director of people at baker tilly international for those that don't know what baker tilly international is although i hope dearly that you do um we are a top 10 international accounting network with 38,000 people globally. We have member firms in almost all countries around the world, I want to say, or at least most of them. Um, and so I, I hold this role as the global director of people, um, and I'm charged with executing the people strategy for our network. Um, and it's been quite an interesting journey getting here. I started my life out as an auditor. Um, I trained as a chartered accountant myself. Um, so started as an auditor, very quickly realized Audit's not for me. <laughs> and as soon as I qualified, I actually, I left practice and went into, into academia. So I was then um, teaching the Chartered Accountancy exams, so the ICAW exams at Catplan Financial. And I'd say that's where my passion for people probably started to evolve um, because you're seeing sort of these trainees coming in, they're fresh faces, they're very green, um, they're, they're sort of very optimistic and very excited, but, you know, they've got this journey ahead of them for three years to qualify, and it's quite a stressful journey. And, um, you know, while you're there to teach them professional exams, there's elements of what you do that are counsellor-like and coach-like as well. Um, so you really sort of, you became as a tutor someone that they really confided in on a lot of things that overlapped into not just studies but work and personal life as well and you know I felt very passionately about my students and I felt very passionately about teaching but that environment was changing quite significantly where it was all going more online um, and that just wasn't for me for me I love the interaction in person with people um, and you know after 10 years I needed a new challenge so I went back into industry and actually through my teaching I specialized in tax and when I went back not back into industry, back into practice. When I went back into practice, it was in tax. And then I spent, I have spent the last sort of five or six years in tax. So I actually came into Baker Tilly International as the director of tax. And then I've transitioned into this sort of director of tax and people development role, which has now gone into the director of people role. So it's been an interesting journey and all sort of stemming from my passion when it comes to people and culture in the workplace and how people find meaningfulness in what they do. Um, and I also actually, during COVID, as a lot of people did, I, I, I retrained a little bit um, and I did a training course. Uh, I did a coaching course. So I qualified um, as a business and personal coach. And that's been a really nice compliment to lead me to the point where I am today, um, where I'm director of people, being a chartered accountant myself, having had that experience in academia and now also a coach as well it's a bit of a bit of an interesting journey that was the long-winded answer to your short question sorry <laughs> it's a fascinating story and what a journey I've written down a few things I'd love to ask you about and this 
podcast goes out to 27,000 accountants all over the world and in 150 countries. And we are in predominantly a man's world. It's been male dominated for so long. So I'm going to touch on some of those subjects with you, but take us back to the very beginning. A very young Andrew you're going through school. You didn't want to be an astronaut or a trained driver or something else. What were you thinking about your journey at that point? I, I love this question because honestly, my earliest recollection was when I was about seven years old. And I remember watching a movie and there was a female firefighter in this movie. And I was like, I'm going to be a firefighter. <laughs> okay. For me, I, was, I, I wasn't a girly girl. I didn't, you know, I didn't have, um, I guess what would be stereotypically classed as classical girly aspirations. Yeah, you, you went feminine. You wanted to be a bit macho and yes. yeah. Absolutely. As I, as I stopped growing at the age of 12, I realized being a firefighter was probably not going to be particularly practical at five foot one. Um, so I am quite um, small, you know, jokes aside. Um, I, I loved school and I was really academic and I had a passion for all subjects, but I didn't get to sort of A-levels and think, I really want to be a doctor or I really want to study English or something like that. It was all very, I'm kind of living in the moment and I'm doing the things that I enjoy, but what is my next step? What is my career? And there was nothing that I felt very passionately about, but here's my inspiration. My father is a chartered accountant. He has his own firm. And, you know, as I was growing up, summer holidays would be spent um, helping him with the filing in his office and doing all kinds of things like that. And it just seemed like sort of a natural thing to go into. So, yeah, I did a degree. It's cliche, but I did a degree in accounting and finance. <laughs> and then it just was only natural to then go into chartered accountancy. And, you know, it's been the best thing because... I spoke at a school a few weeks back at sort of a careers evening. And, um, you know, the way I described it to them was I've created five different careers out of one qualification. This is the main thing about what you can do with this qualification. So it's just, it's been a very exciting journey for me. Um, there are some parallels with the guest we had recently called Avni Desai. She's the CEO of Shellman, the 55th largest CPA firm in the US. They turn over 100 million. They're the newest firm in the top 100. They have 470 staff. And with a name like Avni Desai, she's a woman and she's a minority. So growing up, she said there were no, there was nobody like me. Talk to us about the name Andrula and your background and your heritage and what that meant for you in terms of your work ethic and what was available to you back then. Do you know, I love that question as well. So my background, I was born in the UK. You can probably tell from the way I speak English that, um, you know, I was born you in the yeah. I'm, I'm reasonably fluent. <laughs> my heritage is Greek separate. The thing I can credit myself with in inverted commas I am I'm stubborn and I'm a bit bloody-minded and feisty there we go and I live my life and I I have a 10 year old son as well and one of the things I'm because you know at 10 years old 10 year olds are pretty concerned about what everyone else around them thinks and one of the things I'm really trying to instill in my son is don't be concerned about what other people think and other people's opinions. Do what you want to do in life as long as you are not hurting anyone else in the process. Were you like that at 10 years old? Yeah, I absolutely was. I didn't care what other people thought. Didn't want to fit in a box. I didn't want to meet, I wasn't interested in meeting anyone else's expectations. And I really wasn't interested. Or actually, I'll tell you what, I really was interested when people said to me, you're not going to be able to do that. 
best thing people could ever say to me. Red rag to a bull, isn't it? That <laughs> it is. It absolutely is. And everything I was told, and there were lots of things I was told I wasn't going to be able to achieve. I've done every single one of those things. So the accounting and finance career opened up for you. You must have seen though back then, even at university, that it was a male-dominated environment. Uh, and that, it sounds like, would have spurred you on to book the trend, if you like, and say, I'm going to blaze a trail here. I'm going to pioneer. Was that going through your mind? Yeah, I I don't know that it was consciously going through my mind, but I'd certainly say it was subconsciously going through my mind. You know, I was quite privileged to go to um, a really fantastic single sex secondary school. So I went to a little girls school and it was massively empowering, extremely empowering. So for me, I was in this environment where there were no other males. You know, there was no one to compare the girls to. There was no one... Um, I guess, gender biased against the girls because we were all just girls trying to do this thing called life and trying to build some kind of future for ourselves. It's very empowering being in that kind of environment where everyone has a lot of drive to succeed and no one's being told within that environment, you can't do certain things. You know, when I set out in this career, I didn't really have a conscious concern that I was going into a male environment you know, for me, I was in this school where I was empowered and told there's nothing you can't do. And actually, that was very true for the first few years of my career as well. On International Women's Day a few months ago, back in March, I, I ran a session for the network on um, unconscious bias, because that was the theme of International Women's Day. And, you know, one of the things, um, one of the things that I did mention there is that, you know, I've never found, it wasn't in the early years of my career where I found being a woman in a male-dominated industry tricky. Um, because actually, as you start out, there's quite a number of women there. It's as you progress through your career. And actually, a lot of women tend to prioritize family over career. And that's not to say I'm not prioritizing um, my family over my career. It's just I have very different circumstances to the majority of people. I'm a single mother. I've been a single mother since um, my son was seven weeks old. So I've had no choice but to be um, sort of family and career driven at exactly the same time. And it's only since I've been sort of in that environment where I've started to feel the effects of being in this male dominated environment. And especially where, you know, I haven't had that flexibility in order to, um, I'm trying to find the right words to explain what I say here, but, you know, I haven't had someone sitting at home where I can say, can you deal with the kids tonight? I'm yeah, that support structure. Yeah. yeah, that support yeah. structure. So that, you know, I can work late or I can do these, these networking events or I can do this, that and the other. A lot of challenges around that as a single parent as well. It's around that that I've started to feel some of the prejudices and the unconscious biases. There's an interesting uh, book by Malcolm Gladwell who wrote The Tipping Point, and he wrote a book called David and Goliath, and he wrote about how people that suffer extreme adversity, say with dyslexia as they're growing up, it pushes them into some kind of fighting mode where they succeed despite rather than because of their circumstances they know they've got to work that little bit harder overcome that little bit more to get to the same place as everyone else and we were blessed to have Francesca Lagerberg on the show just a few weeks ago somebody you know very well and likewise she's a, a very passionate person feisty you would definitely say that and it seems that there's a pattern here in that 
in what is traditionally a male environment and a very competitive environment, even take the male out of it, you've got to have that fight in you. You've got to have that appetite. You've got to be intrinsically motivated to rise above the pack and get anywhere like you have. Would that be fair? Yeah, I think so. You know, it's so interesting because yes, there have been challenges in fighting the pack, the male pack to get to where I want to be. But I've also equally found challenges in fighting Again, I'm trying to use my words selectively here, but fighting the some of the female pack to get to where I am today as well. So Tell I us think, a bit about that, because I guess some of those will be competitive as well, and they'll want what you've got. Yeah. So, you know, I think what I found, I guess, over the last 10 years or so is that um, there is sort of a, min- you know, women in our industry are a minority where there are women that are ambitious. We're all fighting to get into similar positions. And we're not just battling against the men, but there's also sometimes a bit of battle against each other. There has sort of almost been this feeling like there's there's limited opportunities for women and we have to fight, for want of a better word, against everyone to get to where we want to be. And that's actually been so sad because that's not that's created this idea that women don't get along with other women in the work environment. And women are very confrontational and women are very emotional and all of these kind of stereotypes that we are labeled with. And actually, I think we're, we're really at a turning point now. And it's a nice turning point because women and men are different. Okay. They just are biologically different. I'm a father of two daughters. I can testify that when they were growing <laughs> up, that women and men, boys and girls play the game differently. Women are a bitchy, a little bit behind your back very scheming and planning and and men boys are I'll just punch you in the face if we don't agree and they roll their sleeves up and they get on with it have a punch up dust themselves down and move on and they don't hide their schemes so well I'm gonna challenge that though and I'm gonna say I'm open to that (laughs) women have had to fight and scheme because of so many challenges that they have had to face prejudices culture yes where they are it's not that their choice to deal with things in that way throughout our careers everything is has been a mini fight and so what that means is that women in our industry a lot of women in senior that have gotten to those senior positions but a lot of them have gotten there by echoing male behaviors oh together, that's interesting mirroring male behaviors men make the rules men play the game men do it their way to get to the top and many men do just by virtue of numbers then women say well look, okay if that's the way it's played if that's the way you get to the top if that's the way you get promoted and hired then i have to do it that way yeah and and it, it is that i mean i can't think of a specific example but it you know it is a man's world that's been around um, that's built around male culture and male way of doing things. And as you referenced before, you know, boys tend to play fighting games. Um, they tend to, you know, in the work environment, you get loads of, there's loads of sports references, right? Of course, yes. Um, you know, um, it's a testosterone-driven world, isn't it, yeah, in that respect? You know, if I think um, through, on in a 24-hour period at work, I'll hear things like, um, let's get this over the line. It's a slam dunk. Of course. Um, that, you know, to, even the word strategy comes from a Greek word, a leader in an army. Oh, okay. I never knew that. That's your Greek heritage teaching. Yeah, there we go. And so the, the whole environment has been built around male-centric culture. In this environment that has been entirely defined by male-centric culture. And so the only way 
to get to the top or that could be seen to get to the top was to mimic the exact same behaviors rather than leaning in to the behaviors that are biologically more natural to women in order to get to the top. And because it just wasn't accepted to show those behaviors, it's not, it wasn't accepted to be emotional. It wasn't accepted to take different approaches to things until more recently. And we're now really far more open to some of the more softer female characteristics and the benefits they bring into the workplace. So, you know, women are more naturally people, people. That's how our characteristics come in, in terms of sort of um, team leaders. As team leaders, we're, we're quite good at bringing people together and creating debate and bringing thought out from all individuals. And so I, I see a shift. I've, I've seen it quite significantly over the last few years. I love the fact that we've now got Francesca as our new CEO. Like she's just amazing. And even when she joined, I was like, oh, goodness me, is she, what kind of female leader is she going to be? Is she going to be that kind that I described her 10 years ago? Or is she going to be the new kind where she's inclusive and um, she supports other women in the workplace? And she's that kind of person. She supports women in the workplace. And she's she's very caring and she feels very passionately about equality and diversity. And it's such a great environment to be in when you no longer feel you have to fight for your rights to be where you are. We've had a couple of interesting guests on the show. Uh, two black guys. Herschel Frierson is the chair of the National Association of Black Accountants in North America. And Professor Anton Lewis is one of the premier academics in the world on critical race theory and speaks a lot into the accounting profession. And both of them speak to, as we were growing up in the accounting world, there was nobody like us. So as you came into this world, you're looking for allies, aren't you? You're looking for champions. You're looking for people that will open doors for you. Did you have mentors, role models as females, or even in minority uh, status in the accounting world as you progressed your career? You know, my mentors were all male. Wow. They were all male. And I, I, I would count myself as being really lucky um, to have found those mentors as I've gone through. Um, I'd say my first one, without a shadow of a doubt, is my father. Um, my father was blessed with three daughters, um, so he had no choice but to be only kind of way to all three of his daughters. But it's great to have him on the side and to always be able to go to him and bounce things off him. Great cheerleader for you, I would imagine. Absolutely, absolutely. And then, you know, as I have gone through my careers, especially when I was in my previous firm before Baker Tilly International, I had three individuals there who I was classed as mentors, all of which were male, all of which just were so supportive and would give their time to me whenever I needed it to talk things through. And that was a real boost of confidence for me having those people around. And so actually over time, sadly, I can't say that I've had female mentors until this point in time. Because they just weren't there or they didn't they make themselves available? When you look up the ladder, you see so few females there. You know, you don't know for a while whether that's a good female role model or not a good one. Very good point. You know, it takes time to work out whether that is someone that you can and whether they're female or male but whether that's someone you can trust whether you can go to them um for advice or mentoring or coaching yeah what's their agenda might you be a threat to them do they want to keep you down so they can absolutely so you know i, I sadly i didn't feel like i had that for most of my career and so that's why it's been so important to me that i am available 
to other women who are, you know, working their way up. And if people want to talk to me, I, I will spend any amount of time talking to anyone that wants to sort of understand a bit more about my journey, wants some advice, anything. And, you know, you can probably tell already, I'm a pretty open book. I'm quite happy to share anything about my journey on where I got here. You know, I do get quite a few females within the global organization reaching out to me and saying to me, you know, can I have half an hour of your time just to chat through some things? And actually, quite recently, I've had a number of people within the network who have approached me and said, as transparent as I was just now about the fact that I'm a single mom, I'm really proud of the fact that I'm a single mom. You know, the challenges I face being a single mom, a lot of the things I learned from that are things that I've brought to work on a daily basis. And that magnifies your achievements, Angela, in a way. Yeah. So I'm very proud of that. And I talk very openly about that. And, you know, I've had some people come to me and say to me, you know, I'm also a single mom, but I don't like talking about it because I think people will judge me. And I found it really empowering that you spoke about it. And I'm like, hey, I'm really proud that this is my label because, you know, here's the things I've achieved. And, you know, I'm, I'm also raising this child on my own. Um, and I've been through certain challenges, but it's made me really resilient. And I'm proud of that story because that's made me who I am today. And I'm proud of my career. So, you know, own that and, 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 and talk about it because we need to get rid of these labels that people associate with negative things. They're not negative things. You know, if this leads me to another person, I guess, who would I class as a, a, a mentor as well. He's um, one of our tax partners in Germany. And, you know, he says to me, I, I love recruiting women because they have had to fight so much more for where they want to be. They're just really great workers. And so I really enjoy, and even single mums, I look for single mums because, you know, they've got this extra set of skills and they've, they've had to juggle so much more to get to where they are. But that's really useful to me in the workplace. It's so refreshing to hear those kind of comments. Talk to us about the importance of culture. You've mentioned it a couple of times, Andrew. There are obviously men in there that are, are, are prejudiced as individuals. Women shouldn't play golf. Women shouldn't play football. Women uh, shouldn't do this and that. Women shouldn't vote. They've got those individual prejudices, but you're often pushing against culture as well. Many, many years of heritage and tradition and weighted down by that. Have you pushed back against that and broken through, do you feel? Yeah, I, yes, I think so. I do think so. And But it, it varies from one place to another. I don't think we can say as an industry we've broken through all the, the ceilings and walls and the biases and the, the challenges in culture fully. But we're talking about it now, aren't we? Diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, that's all on the agenda. We It's not just ticking a box anymore, is it, Derek? So people, you would get that. Yeah, it's so important that we continue to acknowledge that this is something that's never going to be fully resolved. So we shouldn't lose speed. All right, we've got to keep momentum going and constantly be seeking for change that brings improvement and equality for all individuals within a workplace. So the opportunity is absolutely equal for everyone, regardless of their ethnic background, their gender, their um, sexual orientation, whatever it is. Because the reality is, and I'm banging on on a drum here, I know that, you know, this everyone's aware of this, but I, we've got to constantly keep saying it. With diversity of individuals and backgrounds, you have diversity of thought. If you have a group of individuals that have all come from the same background, gone through the same journey in life, you're only going to get perspectives from that one grouping of individuals. But if you have individuals from lots of different backgrounds, you're 
innovation goes from here to here. If you find ways to harness the collective intelligence of lots of individuals from lots of different backgrounds, your ability to innovate just is supercharged. I love that. And innovation gives you competitive advantage. It maintains your relevancy in the marketplace as an individual and as a firm, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And you've got to think that your customer base is diverse. As the accounting profession, where it was historically very, very male-dominated and actually is still quite male-dominated today, your clients aren't (laughs) male-dominated. I read somewhere recently the average age of an accounting partner is 53, but the average age of a business owner is 31, at least here in the UK. More and more women are coming through as business owners as well. So how are you representing that diversity with the people you're matching them up with in your firm? People still have this idea that I go to my accountant and it's, you know, uh, no offence, but it's a 50, 60-year-old man and he's in a grey suit and he looks like an accountant. Um, (laughs) Stale, male and pale. Yeah, exactly. You know, people now expect or hope that when they go to their accountant, they're going to sit across the table from someone that maybe looks a bit like them and is a bit like them. So yeah, really really important to me really over the years that I've beaten the stereotypical definition of what an accountant is. And I hope I've done that effectively. You have. I I wrote down this quote that another guest shared with me recently. When you represent your clients in the right way and you look like them, you, you know their world, you speak their language and you understand their problems in a way that an older accountant doesn't do. Andrea, talk to us about your leadership style. Are you an agitator and a disruptor or are you a comforter and a handholder? You've been very open and vulnerable, but you've got to be strong and tough at times as well. So I think my leadership style has actually changed quite significantly over the last few years. I would say I I would have defined myself as a micromanager. Is that a control thing? Um, It is a control thing, uh, for sure. It's because I'm a perfectionist which I used to be very proud of being a perfectionist. I now realize that's a flaw. I had a very set idea in my mind about how I thought things should be done. And I expected everyone to deliver things the way I thought things should be done. And that's completely shifted. It's completely shifted now. What's changed your mind on that? I think it's maturity. I think it's moving into the different roles and progressing up my career, um, managing Bigger teams, managing um, more experienced individuals within my teams as well does change your approach on leadership. And I would say now that I have lots of different leadership styles and I lean into each one depending on what I see as being appropriate for that situation. I would like to think that I lean more towards um, the visionary leadership style now. So I like to think that What I do with my team is I create a vision and I want everyone to join me on the journey. And I'm I'm not the leader on this journey. I'm at this point, I'm a team member on this journey to deliver that vision. You make a great point for flexibility in your approach. I'm thinking of a football manager, a bit of a cliche, but they'll put their arm around some players and tell them they're great. And they'll kick other players at the backside and swear at them. We call it the hairdryer treatment, don't we? I'm just thinking of my wife and I, we both met at a health club and in the morning I'd go in at seven o'clock for a workout and there would be this sergeant major type uh, firefighter in his spare time and he's telling me, come on brownie, you piece of dirt, 50 more (laughs) push-ups. And Amanda, my wife, she wouldn't want any of that. She didn't want anyone telling her what to do first thing in the morning. She'd go off and do her own thing in her own way. We all respond to different ways of being motivated and buying into the vision, don't we? And you've got to play to all of those. Definitely, definitely. And actually I, I, 
deliver a lot of training on leadership styles and I've, I've done a lot of research on this and I've um, again this was part of my coaching training as well there was some research done a few years back and there's some great articles in Harvard Business Review actually written um, predominantly by Daniel Goleman who is a psychologist I don't know if you know him but he's done a lot of research and he's, he's got a lot of experience on leadership styles and the emotional intelligence competencies you need to be able to lean into in order to be able to switch leadership styles depending on the different situations. So he says there's about six different leadership styles. No one should only be using one. There's probably one that you lean into predominantly. And out of those six, he says there's four that create a positive work environment. There's two that actually impact negatively on the work environment. Um, But even he says those two that impact overall negatively on the work environment, there's still a place where those leadership styles are useful and that you should lean into them. So he gives one example of if you you stepped into, I guess, as a CEO of a new company um, and the company's failing and you've been charged with turning it around, you're probably going to need to lean into your micromanaging leader um, in the short term to get things done, right? But then you're going to want to get to a point where you lean into your democratic style to get people on board and then your visionary um, uh, style in order to create that, you know, where's the purpose? What are we aiming towards? Where do we need to go? So that you bring then bring people on that journey to get there. But then you also want to be leaning into your coaching style so that you're developing people around you in a way that means, you know, I don't have to do everything. So I've developed these people and they're good and they know what they need to do. And I can coach them to find the answers to things. And then I've got this team that is completely capable. And so if I am on holiday for a week, I know I don't need to check into my emails because I know my team have got this. That's where a lot of leaders struggle to let go of that control because they're scared that people can do it better than them. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're scared that other people could do things better than you, it's probably because they can do things better than you. And that's an insecurity, isn't it? A a self-esteem issue as a leader. Andrea, talk to us a little bit about your role, director of people. After my teaching career, I did a master's in human resource development. And so human resources would tend to be what we would call somebody like you. But director of people, it sounds grand. It sounds glamorous. It sounds so much more sexy than human resource director or something like that. So what kind of things are involved in your role? Yeah. So, you know, when when I say to people I'm director of people, um, they say to me, oh, that's an HR role. And I'm like, it isn't. It's more than that, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely isn't. I... None of what I do relates to, um, I don't know, benefits, salary reviews. Employment contracts. Yeah, performance reviews, apart from my team, obviously, but it's none of that. Because right now, today, in the environment we are in, people are number one. For years, we've said, oh, which we've questioned, what comes first, clients or, or employees, clients or employees? And we've always said clients, because without the clients, there's no work for the employees to do. That is a fallacy. That is absolute rubbish. Your employees come first, always. Because if you look after your employees and your employees are happy, your clients skip through the door and the work is delivered well and to a high standard. And the relationship between employees and clients is good. And the referrals come in. 
it's always employees first. How do we put employees first? Everyone thinks, oh, we've got to give everyone pay rises. It's all about money. It's not about money. It's important. Don't get me wrong, especially when it's 10% inflation out there. It's really important. But actually, people come to work now and it's not just about money. They come to work and want so much more. They need more. It's, it's so cliche to say, oh, it's all about purpose now and people need purpose. I, do, I, I really dislike using the word purpose, to be honest. Because but you have done a lot of work on meaningfulness, haven't you? That's a key passion. Need, for you. Yeah. So for me, meaningfulness is the important thing. All right. What's the distinction between that and, and purpose? Then? Meaningfulness, I connect with that word so much more than the word purpose. Okay. Um, I, it, I think meaningfulness is a term that connects more closely to a human and human feelings and experiences than purpose done because an individual can have purpose but organizations can have purpose as well whereas I for me personally how I connect with the word meaningfulness it's a lot more for me so it's more about me as an individual and the experience that I am going through as I'm doing what I'm doing and again you know it's for years we've measured employees happiness and satisfaction and it's absolutely ridiculous because you can be happy one minute and unhappy the next minute. You can be satisfied one minute and unsatisfied the next minute. So if you're always trying to make people happy, always trying to make people satisfied, you're never going to achieve that because you cannot be happy 24-7, 7 days. However, you can feel meaning 24-7, 7 days a week. It, it has longevity in it so much more than happiness or satisfaction. We need to focus more on ensuring people have meaning in what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. And there's three factors you need to um, include in that. So whether that's, you know, it's, it's the culture within an office, it's their individual role and what they need to deliver in terms of their objectives, but it's also how that fits into the bigger picture and the grandest it's so important that people understand and are communicated to about what impact their role has in the bigger picture the bigger purpose of the organization that's where it's appropriate to use that one. i'm holding up my book build your reputation which essentially is a career playbook and in it i talk about building career capital that you can trade as a professional like an accountant for quote work you love on your terms unquote and work you love on your terms is meaningful work interesting work with people that you enjoy being around. And those jobs don't go to everybody. There are lo jobs lower down the food chain, if you like, that, that are more grinding and more chained to your desk. But if you can build career capital, a great reputation, great thought leadership, great ideas, great content, a great network, or all of these things that build career capital, you can swap it for work you love on your terms. And you, as a director of people, you want to give meaningful work to people and give them work on their terms as much as possible. Now, listen, I would love to get you back and talking more on another show about meaningful work and things like conscious bias and culture and other things. But just a couple more questions and we'll, we'll bring this home. What do accountants, male, female, minority, white, middle class, what do accountants need these days in these challenging times to stay competitive and relevant? Do you think? My goodness, that's a big question. Well, this is a podcast. You, you're mm. you're on here because you have all the answers. <laughs> oh gosh, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> well, we know that what got accountants here won't get them there. We know that there's a labor shortage. We know that there's a talent question going on here. We know that the profession may not be as attractive as it used to be. 
We know that the skills that accountants need these days are not necessarily the ones that they would have needed in the past. So to stay relevant, to stay competitive, let me start you off by saying we've got to go beyond the mere technical credentials and get an exam. There's so much more than that to the role, isn't there? There is. Um, You know, being technical is an equal part of what you need to be. And there are probably a dozen things that you need to be a relevant accountant today. So, you know, let's go down the list. Yeah, you need to be technical, but you need to be a relationships person. So important in our relationships first. You need to be able to talk in simple language. Um, No flashy words, no technical talk. Speak in something that our clients can understand. Love that. Jack Welsh, former CEO of GE General Electric, said any idiot can make something more complex. (laughs) It's so true. Yeah, you just pick fancier words. (laughs) We need to be tech- technologically savvy for sure. So much more than more. turning a computer on and off, right? Absolutely. But without being a geek or a nerd, we don't need to code now, do we? But no, no, no. Although that is useful as well. But yeah, we do, and you know that extends to things like um, social media, like we like things like LinkedIn, um, and you know that's such a useful tool for getting things out there for you know you need to be able to demonstrate that you have thoughts and opinions and they're formed on the basis of a solid foundation of evidence and experience and you need to be able to talk confidently towards that as well because that's what innate that's what builds trust and trust is a really key part of what we need to um uh, what ne- what it needs to be there to enable great relationships with our clients with our, our staff whoever it is um, I'm just trying to, you know, we need to be competent communicators. My goodness, that's so important. So important. Business and acumen, commercial awareness, thinking like an entrepreneur. Absolutely. But that communication piece, that's that's actually something where I think that as an industry, we're still not great on. Well, you we- were heavily involved in the examination side of things as you coach people. And it's not really part of the exam, is it? No, it isn't. Although like that, a lot of the later papers are written so you sort of you have to write answers that are fully explained and you have to justify your answers um, you know, why have you said something you were going to say um there's a skill there for sure but it's a skill that you can blag and you don't necessarily master at that point in time and actually we we've got to stop thinking there's things that we can say and things that we can't say and no one should talk about these things that we can't say and i always question it now why can't we say that? Why can't we share that information with people? What damage is it going to do by sharing it versus what damage does it do by not sharing it? That's the question I ask now. And actually what you end up finding is that most of the things you decide not to share, it causes more damage because the rumor mill works or people start making their own conclusions or drawing their own interpretations to things. And actually, if you just send a clear but simple message out in the beginning, um, people can just get on and do things better because they've got all the information that they need. So I think we need to be better communicators for sure. They're very good. Andrea, we'll put your contact details in the show notes, your LinkedIn profile. But if you've made yourself very available, particularly to female professionals rising up through the ranks, if people want to get in touch with you, have a conversation, pick your brains, take you for a coffee, you're very gracious in that. What's a good way for them to reach you? Yeah, just message, connect with me on LinkedIn and message me. More than happy. That's great. Final question then. As a call to arms, if you like, what would you say to your fellow female professionals, your fellow minority professionals that are coming up through the ranks or even they've risen to a high level and they still want to make a difference? They're pushing up against many years of tradition. 
and prejudices. What words of encouragement would you give to them in close? It's the same thing that I say to my 10-year-old son. Stop caring about what people think because you're only imposing your own limitations on yourself. Um, you, you need to be, it's useful to be assertive um, and it's useful for you personally to really care a lot less about what other people think and other people are doing. This is your journey. Know where you want to get to um, and do what you need to do to get there. And actually, I'm going to add one more thing to that. Um, choose your support network. Everyone needs a support network. So, you know, while going back to the comment before, I'm a single mum, my support network has been limited. I have had selected people that I've, I'm happy to accept help from because I know I need it in order to do what I, I want to do. Find your support network. Find the people that you can trust. It's okay to need to lean on people to, to do what you need to do and get to where you want to be. Um, you can't do everything on your own. And definitely where you find that you've got people that you look up to and whose opinion you respect, lean on that, lean into that and go to them and use them and bounce ideas off them. Um, that would be my advice. I love that last one, particularly I do a keynote called the 12 kinds of people you need in your network. And there's a phrase, you've got to do it by yourself, but you can't do it alone and you need good people around you. So that, that's a fantastic place to finish. But in short, great time to be an accounting professional in your eyes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it, you know, I recently convinced a friend to go into chartered accountancy and she's 40 years old and she's just starting out as a trainee in chartered because it is just it's such a great qualification like I go back to what I said before I've made five careers out of one qualification that's why it's such a great profession to be in yeah well Andrew Lissateri and global head of people at Baker Tilly it's been wonderful to have you on thank you so much for your passion your insights and your time today improve your practice while decreasing how hard you work to make your firm really fly. Sponsored by Dext.